Luke chapter 2. Luke 2. Fear can be a powerful motivator, right? For things that we do, fear can cause us to take prudent steps to respond to imminent danger. Fear can also cause us to respond sometimes irrationally in ways that are impulsive. The world of politics plays increasingly on people's fears, whether it's to get candidates elected or policies passed. You've all seen the commercials that start with the dark screen and the ominous music and electing this candidate will, will destroy your life or this one will somehow change the world for the better for you or this policy will ruin things or whatever it is. So much of it is based on fear, trying to play on people's fears. Someone I worked with on the Hill a number of years ago wrote a column this past week urging evangelicals to not be held captive by fears, but to seek God first. And that column ended quoting John 14, 27, where Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Appreciate that exhortation, particularly for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, that is an appropriate thing because that is our Savior reminding us that I have come to bring you peace, that you need not fear, live by faith in him, even when we are tempted to be afraid. At the same time, culturally, it gets easy to kind of throw around phrases like, let not your heart be troubled, don't be afraid. And we, we ought not do that if we separate those phrases from the Prince of Peace and his gospel. And that kind of peace, that, that comfort in situations that would normally provoke fear, is really only for those who are trusting fully in Jesus Christ, who have ultimate peace in him. The Bible is abundantly clear that those who are not trusting in Jesus Christ have reason for fear. The Bible says it in Hebrews 10.31 that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Rejection of Jesus Christ, rejection of his gospel does not put one in a place of peace, but rather appropriately of, of fear, of standing before a just God. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah uh, sent out a warning of false teachers who went around crying, peace, peace, at a time when God was actually working to judge Israel and didn't want them to think that all was somehow just fine and perfect and good. Rather, he warned that these were false teachers. Real, lasting peace, that, that inner calm that, that fortifies, that strengthens us in life storms is only possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from him, there may be superficial feelings of seasons that things sort of seem good and under control, but as soon as circumstances seem to go badly and go wrong, that's when a heart that is not settled in the peace of the gospel will not find peace in life circumstances. One of the most famous lines that people know when they hear Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ is when the angel comes to the shepherds in the field and says, first thing, Fear not, right? Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This morning, and then next Sunday morning, and, and then on Christmas Eve, Sunday evening, we're going to work through Luke 2, 1 through 20, Luke's record of the birth of Jesus. And, and along the way, I want to just kind of set out for you that we, we are going to see a movement from this the fear of, of earthly circumstances, the potential fear from things in the world toward a place of peace and worship. And so over these next three messages, we're going to highlight a sovereign decree, a heavenly declaration, and the shepherd's discovery. We'll start this morning with this sovereign decree, 
here in Luke chapter 2. And let me begin in verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And stop there. At this moment in history, Caesar Augustus is the most powerful man in the world. As far as the known world is concerned, as far as Luke is writing from, it's all about the Roman Empire. That is the, the civilized empire of the day. And Augustus, who was born Gaius Octavian, is that man. He is that emperor. He's really the first Roman emperor over the complete empire at this stage. He was a relative of Julius Caesar. He was a chosen by Julius Caesar to be his appointed heir, ruled over the empire for more than 40 years, starting in 27 BC, and was often referred to as a son of God and also as the savior of the world. It was because of his political guile and his military strength, which he could order, that Caesar was able to do, Augustus was able to do what hadn't been done before, and that is to bring peace throughout the empire and to intimidate people into laying down their arms. So when Augustus spoke, his words were heeded. When Augustus set out a decree, people listened and they obeyed because they understood the force that was behind that decree. And so he calls people to be registered. That term for registered is used four times in these first five verses. Speaking of this registration or this census, this enrolling that, that Caesar decrees, that Augustus Caesar decrees. The, the registration had either of two purposes in, in that day. One was for eligibility to military service, to know who was, who was there and who could be counted in, and also primarily for taxation. The Jews were exempt from military service, and so this is to them a registration to pay taxes. This is the wonderful privilege of coming down and signing up so that you can give money to the Roman Empire and help fund what Caesar decides to do. So not exactly a high moment for the Jewish people. One commentator puts it this way, the census signaled an unwelcome alien intrusion into the affairs of the Jewish people, a reminder of the allegiance required of Israel as a conquered people. It is you will do what we say. And it is that acknowledgement that is going on in this call to come and be registered, to come and be enrolled to pay taxes. Verse 2 then introduces us to another man, Quirinius, who is governor of Syria, and, and a challenge here, at least in terms of the, the text of Scripture, because the birth of Jesus Christ, as we understand it historically, happened a couple of years before the time that Quirinius was actually made governor of Syria. There's a number of attempts to try to reconcile this. Probably the simplest one is best, and that is Quirinius at the time was head of the military over that region of Syria, head of its foreign policy, and had all of the authority to enforce this decree. He may not have been governor, but he was probably the, the, the intimidator, you know, the one who had the ability to make sure that it was carried out and executed. Quirinius would also go on to become governor, and just as we do when we look at 
politicians who held office years ago and we talk about them, we generally regard them by the highest office they held at the end of their career. That's sort of the title that stays with them. And so Quirinius would go on to become governor. Looking back, he would be referred to as governor. At this point in time, he is in a place where he has the position that he can enforce this tax, this registration. So all of that, clear from records, historical records outside scripture, confirms again that what Luke is saying is, is, is abundantly true, that Caesar Augustus was indeed the ruler of the empire at this point in time, that there was a man named Quirinius who was governor of the region uh, during the early years of the life of Jesus Christ, and there is historical record of this empire-wide tax assessment that was carried out as well right around that same time. Joseph lives in Nazareth up in Galilee, and he had to report to his ancestral home. He had to go back to the place which is called Bethlehem, the city of David. Take a look at the map one more time, and we can track from Bethlehem. There's Jerusalem, kind of the main travel route from there, but Jerusalem, and there's Bethlehem a few miles south, all the way up to Nazareth. And so presumably they would have traveled, as we've talked about the women at the well and the, the issue with the Samaritans, probably went down and around. It's about a 90-mile trip before they would come back to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem. At least a three-day journey, not an easy journey by any stretch. We presume, of course, that Mary went along with him because she is approaching full term and they do not want to be separated at this point in time. And so they make that trip. Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. When we think of the traditional story, if you will, of the birth of Jesus Christ, there's elements in that that aren't necessarily as explicit in Scripture as they are sometimes in the accounts that are told sort of on the secular sort of perspective. Uh, the, the search throughout the city of Bethlehem, the knocking on the doors of the inns and the looking for room and for vacancies, it's not really spelled out in Scripture. The sort of onerous innkeeper who banishes this young couple, uh, seemingly something we can barely understand out to some outside court, is not really described explicitly there in Scripture. Verse 6 would suggest when it says that, and while they were there, suggests that they were there for at least some period of time before the onset of labor. And then that word for in at the end of verse 7 has several different meanings. One of them we see later on in Luke's gospel when Jesus is approaching the end of his life. He's coming near the cross and he is sending his disciples into Jerusalem to find a place where they can celebrate the Passover together. And in Luke chapter 22 verse 11, he says that they should go to this house and ask the master of the house, where is the guest room? The Greek word for guest room there is the same word as in here. So it, it, it could mean a room in a home. Um, it, it could be that, that they are left to be sort of in, in, in kind of peasant housing, um, whatever may have been available, um, where the, the housing for the people and the animals was really not all that far apart, one above the other, and in pretty sparse conditions, pretty small, pretty crowded at that point. There were also open courtyard spaces in that day called caravansaries, and you kind of get a picture here. Um, this was sort of um, I won't name a particular motel chain, but you could compare it maybe to some smaller motel chains that, you know, cheaper housing, 
Um, so you've got animal kind of places down below, you've got places for people up above, and traveling caravans could come and have this open sort of cart courtyard and be a place for, for temporary housing. As you look at that, even if that's similar in any way to, to what it was, you, you get the sense that it was not a very private, roomy, comfortable sort of situation by any means. That there was not a, a, a good, solid room for them to have, but rather it was going to be some kind of space that ultimately was in some way open and was public in some way. And it is there that Mary gave birth. With all of the attendant challenges and the fear and the pain and the smell of animals and the messiness of childbirth and the inexperience of, of Joseph being with her, with all of that, Mary delivers her firstborn son and the Son of God is incarnate, comes into being here on earth. John MacArthur writes, alone except for her young husband, far from her family and friends in the most primitive of conditions, a young girl gave birth. Thus did the second person of the Trinity step from eternity into time and space. Despite the, the quiet, wonderful little manger scene that we've all seen, that we've all either had on top of our fireplace or we've grown up with it that looks so, so sweet and so wonderful, the reality is it's not a stretch to imagine Mary feeling genuine distress at the strangeness, the noise, the smell of this place in which she was giving birth. It's not at all a stretch to imagine the humiliation that Joseph felt at, at having only this for the place of the birth of his firstborn son and having to then take that child and lay him down for the first time in an animal's trough for his crib. It, it is just stark humility, um, simple, simplicity uh, taking place. According to the ancient practice there, it says that Mary then wrapped him in swaddling cloth, strips of cloth that were meant for warmth, for security, and also the more traditional ancient belief of keeping the limbs straight, so the child was wrapped almost mummy-like in, in some respects. And, and we know as we read on, it was that sign of those swaddling cloths and that baby in the manger that would be the sign that the angel would give to the shepherds when they would go and seek out this newborn one. There's a sense, I think, in which this passage is sort of like a funnel in that it's moved us from the world scene, this big picture of the Roman Empire and Caesar Augustus with his decree that all of the empire now shall come and be taxed. And it, it's sort of worked its way down now to the region of Israel, which is a small corner in the Roman Empire. And down even further, then we move to this little village that is about as insignificant as you can get in the scope of Israel, much less the Roman Empire. And sort of like we're, we're taking Google Maps and we're coming in from, from over where the, the emperor's enthroned and his entire enormous empire and we've moved across the Mediterranean down to this little corner in Jerusalem and right there is, is Bethlehem, right nearby, where a young couple would come in this insignificant place to give birth to the Son of God. And it's that truth, that it is the birth of the Son of God, that reminds us that behind all of these remarkable events that we see unfolding, behind all of this is a gracious, loving, sovereign God who is orchestrating his will. A God whose might and wisdom and humility are on display in this passage. Those are the three things I just want to walk through in the rest of our time. His might, his wisdom, and his humility. His might. The fact that God reigns. It is no coincidence 
that at this point in time, the most powerful man in the world suddenly says one day, I want to issue a decree, and we are going to call everyone to come and register to pay taxes. That is not a coincidence, because in fact, Luke starts chapter 2 by saying, in those days, a decree went out. In those days is meant to take us back to everything that he has just unfolded in chapter 1. In the days which began with an angel coming to a Jewish priest in Jerusalem to Zechariah and, and, and Zechariah whose wife is past childbearing years and this angel comes to this priest and says you will have a son and he will be a forerunner to the Messiah he will prepare the way and, and six months later this angel appears to Mary and, and explains to her to this young virgin in Nazareth that she now has found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 1 goes on and it ends with Mary's song of praise, with the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, and then with Zechariah's concluding song of praise in which he declares, Light is about to come on the people. That those who have been in darkness, now the light is coming. In those days, Augustus issued a decree. That is Luke's way of saying, all of this that we clearly see God at work doing, God is just as much at work in those days when the most powerful man in the world says, I think it's time to tax everyone. I'm going to issue a decree, and everyone's going to have to go to their ancestral town. Joel Green writes, on one level, Joseph's journey is the consequence of the almighty decree of Augustus. On another, even the universal rule of Augustus is conceived as subordinate to another purpose, the aim of God. Augustus and Quirinius, the enforcer, if you will, these are strong, powerful men. These are men who run the world, at least so it seems to the average citizen in that day, who have the ability to make decisions that are life and death decisions and impact people's lives. They are the visible sovereigns in an empire where power is largely concentrated in the hands of very few men. You and I only need to have glanced at the news any time within the past month to see the heartbreaking consequences of how men given power and authority misuse that power for evil purposes. We'll take that same power and believe that they can do anything to anyone at any time and somehow get away with that. And, and this is the sort of environment that is here. We, what we're seeing is a relatively small scale in the sense that there is a, a, a diverse number of leaders at various levels. In that day, that power was concentrated at very small points and with very few people. And so Augustus decreed and Quirinius enforced, and neither would have embraced the idea if you had said to them, do you know what? You are a pawn of the prophecy of God right now. You are being used by the God who is over the, the Jewish people in Israel, and he is using you for his purposes. They would have dismissed that in a heartbeat. Who's going to tell them what to do? They rule. And they were being used by God to carry out a precise plan for the bringing of the Messiah to his people and for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. These were sovereign rulers imposing their will on every person in sight because they assumed they were in charge. And the truth of the matter is there is only one who is ultimately sovereign. There is only one ruler who has ultimate sway about whom the word of God says in Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. 
Augustus and Quirinius are being used by the might of God to accomplish God's plan. These events are unfolding in such an interesting way because again, if you're, if you're a Jewish person and Augustus has just issued this decree and you are hearing it read in the public square that Augustus has now said you need to go back to your native town and register so that you could pay taxes, you would not think all was good with the world at that moment. You would not say, oh, rejoicing, I get to go and pay taxes to Augustus. You would be angry. You would be aware again of your subordination to the Roman Empire and the fact that they are a, a mighty fighting force and you must do what you are told at this moment. It would be a reminder that there you are in your corner of the world that that emperor who sits enthroned all, across, all the way across the Mediterranean still has the right with a decree to say, you better do what I say. And so from that perspective, if you're not looking above that and you're simply looking at the circumstances, you're thinking, this is terrible. This is not what I want to do. How can any of this be happening? And yet, all through that, in those days, God is preparing for the coming of his son. God is preparing for the birth of Jesus Christ. The might of God overrules the plans of men. God is ultimately sovereign. By way of application for you and I, that is such a reminder to us in Luke 2 that when we are in those circumstances that seem troubling and confusing, when evil seems to, to be dominating the day, and, and, and things just don't seem to be working the way that we think they ought to go at the moment, it is a gracious reminder that our Lord is Lord over creation. He was Lord over the Roman Empire. That Roman Empire was just a small thing in God's universe, just a small little piece that one day itself would, would be ultimately swept away. And so our, our own circumstances, as painful and, and confusing and difficult as they may be, are exactly the ones that God is using to do wondrous things, to bless his people, to accomplish good in our lives and glory back to him. J.C. Ryle, writing about this passage, wrote a couple of centuries ago, a true Christian should never be greatly upset by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. He should see with the eye of faith a hand overruling all that they do to the praise and glory of God. I think that's a great quote, because we all find moments when we are very upset at the people who are in charge over us. The Jewish people, no doubt, were not happy at that moment. Joseph was not excited about the concept of taking his, his very pregnant bride and, and traveling down to make this miserable journey. And yet the truth is, if we believe this is true, God is sovereign. God is working out his will by his might. We see God's might. We see his wisdom. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, a little-known Old Testament prophet is writing, and he's from a village far southwest of Jerusalem, and he is writing about things coming ahead for the Jewish people. And in one point, the prophet Micah writes about this little village called Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There is God, through his prophet, promising an eternal ruler, one who will have an unending throne from where? From, from Bethlehem, this village that is just so insignificant that, that it even basically says it there in the prophecy, too small, too little to be among the clans of Judah. 
Not a lot was known about Bethlehem at that point. It was, we see it in a couple of Old Testament references. Uh, Rebecca was Jacob's wife, Rachel, I should say, was, was buried near there. Elimelech, when you start off the book of Ruth, Elimelech, who's the patriarch of the family, uh, starts off in Bethlehem before he moves his family to Moab. But 1 Samuel 17 says of someone else who was from Bethlehem, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. David, who would go on to become a man after God's own heart. David, who to this day the Jewish people still regard as the great king over Israel. David would be that one that God would ultimately promise to, as, as, as Stuart read back at the beginning of the service in 2 Samuel 7, God said to David, I will give you an heir to your throne, and that heir will be on the throne forever. David, to whom that promise is made, is from Bethlehem. Also from Bethlehem is this guy named Joseph, who doesn't have a whole lot in terms of material things to give to his son, but he does have ancestry. Luke 1.27 says, Joseph was from the house of David. When the angel told Mary that she would have a son, the angel said, the Lord will give to him, that's speaking to her about her son, the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So that connection to King David, to his line, and then ultimately to the prophecy of Micah 5.2, all converges in this little village of Bethlehem. So not only do we see God's might in executing his will in order to bring this about, but what a marvelous display of God's wisdom. Uh, Think back again to Joseph being in Nazareth as a carpenter, knowing that your wife is coming near full term. What could possibly compel Joseph to say, hey, honey, let's get a donkey and go down to Bethlehem. Let's go back to the hometown. I, I don't think that would go over real well, and I don't think he would have suggested that were it not for a wise, infinitely wise God who at that point, nearing the end of her pregnancy, has the emperor of the world give a decree that says, you're going to have to go back to Bethlehem. You're going to have to make this journey to this insignificant town. Joseph might have made that trip at some point in life as part of a pilgrimage to one of the feasts in Jerusalem and Bethlehem being just a little bit further, visited down there. But, but certainly not when Mary's at full term. That is a, a miserable trip unless, unless a wise God is at work orchestrating circumstances to cause it so that he says, we have to go. We have to go to Bethlehem. Kent Hughes writes this, the poor couple's forced journey to Bethlehem to pay taxes would set the stage for the fulfillment of that messianic prophecy, Micah 5.2. They appeared to be helpless pawns caught in the movements of secular history, but every move was under the hand of Almighty God. That is a, a wonderful display to us of the infinite wisdom of God to accomplish his purposes through his servants at his time. God works perfectly in, in our circumstances. We, we ought to praise him for his wisdom, even when we are in times when we are struggling, when we are wondering why is this happening in this way. God is still infinitely wise and still ultimately working for the accomplishments of his purposes. And then lastly in this section, just the, the glorious humility of God. The birth of Jesus Christ is the birth of the Savior of the world. 
in a very real way, this is the most important moment in human history. This is a remarkable thing. And, and give this to any one of us ahead of time and say, write the script. Jesus, fully God, will leave the splendor of heaven and the angels and will come to earth and be fully God and fully man. Write that script. And I dare say any of us have trumpets and angelic choirs and maybe thunder rumbling and, and all sorts of drama that goes into this that grabs the world's attention and, and, and maybe the sky splits open and there's this incredible scene. God does have that day coming still when the sky splits open and our Savior appears. But that wasn't the case here. That script wouldn't have fit here. Everything that we think should have been the case runs to the contrary. It all happens quietly in some stable or, or cave, some kind of shelter, some spot so primitive it could not be more ordinary to parents who could not be more ordinary. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The display of humility that we see in the birth of Jesus Christ, it's inadequate to even call it common because it's less than common. This wasn't an ordinary set of circumstances that happened to Mary and Joseph this day. This was even less than that. This is yet how eternal God entered humanity to save us from our sin. And we should take such comfort from that. Because historically, it is a moment when the people of Israel are more aware than ever that they are paltry subjects to a hostile pagan emperor in an environment, in an empire that, that has very little regard for them. They are more aware of that than ever. They are more aware of the fact that there is reason to fear persecution. You better register because there's reason to fear his army and what his guard will do to you. There is reason to fear the oppressive taxation that they will demand of you and you will have no choice but to pay. And yet all the while, their loving God is working through all these historical circumstances to change the course of history, to bring about the birth of the Savior. He is orchestrating events that are, frankly, imperceptible to most people. Other than the shepherds, some of the people who were aware of what happened with John the Baptist, Elizabeth and Zechariah, there's some people who have some, some maybe hints, but for the most part, that empire is asleep to what is going on in Bethlehem. They have no clue what, what the God of the universe is doing. And that is why you and I can, can humbly experience life in the same way when Philippians 2 speaks of the humility of Christ and how he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. The, the the encouragement, the exhortation before that is, have this mind in you. Be like this. Think like this. How, how are we to be humble and, and, and to be submissive even at times when we just we think everything's wrong? This is a mess. This isn't right. How, and yet, how is it we are to be humble? Because we have a God who is in control even in our most oppressive circumstances. He continues to rule. This, this kind of humility that, it, that is so striking and it's modeled for us in Christ and commanded for our lives because ultimately our lives don't rest in how great we are or all that we can accomplish. Our lives rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We rest in him.
and our circumstances rest in the hand of a kind God. The humility of Bethlehem, the humility of, that we see in this birth scene, ultimately pales in comparison to the humility of the cross. Because that same Savior who gave up the glories of heaven to be born in this stable, to be laid in a manger, ultimately gives himself over to a Roman guard to be nailed to a cross and hung outside of Jerusalem for all to see and to spit on and to mock. That is the, the, the height of, of humility, if you will. That there is the Savior on display in what seemingly is, is great shame. And it is yet another work where man believes he is orchestrating the day where the Jewish religious leaders believe they have gotten rid of this thorn, this annoyance, this one that people are going to, and the Roman governor feels like he's sided with the Jewish leaders and he's won their favor by doing this, and everybody's gotten rid of this troublemaker. And through it all, what is God doing? Sovereignly bringing salvation to you and I. Sovereignly taking and placing our sins on him so that in him we might experience the righteousness of Christ. And so that's why... Philippians not only takes that demonstration of his humility and calls us to, to take on that kind of mind, but then goes on in Philippians 2, still speaking of the humility of Christ in verse 9, and says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Our culture is happy to embrace the idea that what we are celebrating is this sweet little event that happened a couple of thousand years ago with this birth of this precious baby who went on and, and he preached nice messages about peace and love around society. They're willing to take it that far. We know better, don't we? This is the birth of the Prince of Peace, the birth of the King of Kings. This is the one who God is bringing, not only to save sinners, but also the one that, as he says here, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you and I have the privilege of anticipating that day with the greatest of joy, knowing that we will bow before our Savior, forgiven, his forever, ransomed from our sin, and ready to just spend the rest of eternity in his presence. For those who are not trusting in him, whether it be defiant and with a fist being shaken, they will still bow the knee before Jesus Christ and realize that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. That is our Savior who is at work to ransom a people, to ransom worshipers for himself, to deliver us and to make us his own. That is our Savior whose birth that we celebrate. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for not only creating an eternity past, the remarkable plan of redemption to save a people for yourself, to take sinners who would have defied your will and to provide for them a sacrifice that would rescue them from their sin and their defiance. Lord, thank you for that plan. Thank you for carrying out, executing that plan for allowing us to get a glimpse through, through Luke's eyes of just some of the ways in which you, you just powerfully, kindly, graciously superintended circumstances that, that even the people there in that day couldn't fully see for what they really were. Thank you that you are the sovereign over rulers. Thank you that even today, kings and presidents and rulers and whoever they are in whatever country, ultimately you are the one who is in control and to whom we bow. 
Thank you, Jesus Christ, for giving yourself in our place, for being the sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, thank you that through this, you have encouraged us again that whatever circumstances we are facing, Lord, I, I'm sure amongst my brothers and sisters here, there's a whole range of, of circumstances that come up just this week. Lord, in all of those, help us to be reminded again from your word that you are a good and sovereign God who is working your will out for the accomplishment of your glory to move us to that place of bowing before our Savior and confessing him as Lord. Thank you for your good and finished work in your Son. Thank you for your ongoing work in setting us apart and guiding us day by day as we look forward to when that day comes when the Savior will come in the sky and will be seen by all of his creation as the great ruling king that he is. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.